Welcome to Theology for the People. In today's episode, I speak with my friend Corey Piper. Corey is a teacher who specializes in the Old Testament, theology, and history. And he recently wrote a book called 500 Year Journey, which looks at both history and the Old Testament to consider when the birth of Jesus actually took place and why that question matters. In our discussion, we talk about who the Magi were, why they came to Jerusalem at the exact time they did at the birth of Jesus. We also talk about the star that the Magi saw and why they came to worship the newborn king and how that ties in to the book of Daniel and other Old Testament passages. We also talk about the history of why the church has celebrated the birth of Jesus on December 25th and whether that has any ties to paganism or not. I hope you'll enjoy this discussion. Here's the episode. Hey, Corey, good to have you on the program. Hey, great. Great to be here. Thank you, Nick, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So, Corey, you were a resident of Longmont, Colorado, where I live. And even for a time, you, were, you and your family were part of our church. That was great. And then you moved yeah. away right after you joined our yes. church. You moved yes. and nothing uh, personal. Nothing I know. Personal. I didn't take it personally. <laughs> so maybe you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, and then we want to know how that applies to the book you've written, and then what the thesis of, of your book is, and get into some of the details. Okay. Yeah. I, my wife and I lived in Colorado for 15 years. She lived there for about 20 years. I was a widowed dad before I met her. And actually moved to Colorado after meeting her. And then we got married there. And we, we, we had a house and we had a great time. And we, we got two kids out of the deal. And my, my oldest daughter, just to mention her, Faye, was just now we were back in Colorado. And she's now pregnant. With, and her and her husband are going to have a, a little girl. So we're really super excited about that. We just got back from Colorado just a few days ago. And we moved to Kansas, though, giving up beautiful Colorado in order to be closer to her parents. And so that's why we moved to Wichita, which was close to uh, where my wife grew up and everything. And they're 85, and it's really been significantly important for us to be close to them right now. So we feel like God really did kind of guide us to that. As much as we miss Colorado, at least it's only an eight-hour trip away. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I have taught for my, I think I'm in my, going into my 26th year, starting this next September. And I've always taught Old Testament history. I've always, and mostly middle school is where I've taught. I've also taught some high school classes. And right now I teach for Veritas Scholars Academy, which is an online school that helps homeschooling families and also military families and missionary families and all over the world have a continuity in their life. And it's a classical education, classical Christian education. So we dive into some really deep books and history and everything. And a lot of, some of that really has helped me with my research into the history and studying Josephus in the book that I've written. Yeah. So I, I find that God's really provided it and being online and everything, it's been um, a wonderful connection with families all over the world. Yeah, that's great. And so you've written the book. I know this is your second book. You wrote a book previous to this one about death and resurrection. Yes. Yeah, uh, that book is called To Conquer Death, uh, Seen Beyond the Darkness. My first wife passed away, but she made a choice. Uh, we, we found out she was 
pregnant. She it turned out she had a heart condition called Eisenmenger syndrome, and she had to make a choice whether to continue with the pregnancy or not. And we did, of course. And she just stepped up to the plate and she did something more noble than I can ever even imagine. I appreciate it more now than ever before. And so that book really kind of, it covers about 20 years of my life, not just that event and the aftermath of that choice and raising Faye. And Faye is the one now that's pregnant and is having this um, new little girl and how just, wow, it's just an extraordinary thing. And then I also had a friend during that 20 year time period that uh, died of cancer at age 35. And I just wrestle with the idea of death in this world. Why is there death? What's it for? And uh, all the, the emotional impact of that and the philosophical difficulties of it and whether the Bible's true and it's portrayal of why there's death in this world. And so I wrestle with all of those issues. And anyways, that was, that's a book that was really, really just from my heart and the cry of my heart and a, a walking through some very difficult theological issues. This book is likewise a book that's taken decades to write. This new book is uh, a 500 year journey is really about uh, the birth of Christ and me being a teacher, I, and you know, you as a pastor too, right? You, you have to deal with this all the time. It's like every year you got to talk about the birth of Christ. Yeah. And is there anything really original about it anymore? You know, you go through the traditions and the images and you, you bring up the important um, themes and ideas and all those things. And that's what I would do as a teacher, but I had a different avenue to, into it because as a teacher, I could play around with ideas, maybe a little bit more than a preacher can in front of his, his congregation. And we would um, experiment with different ideas. And I would uh, like, one, what if Jesus weren't actually born on whatever year, 2023 years ago? What if it wasn't one AD? Like you said, what, what if our calendar is completely wrong? And just kind of laid that out there for students. And we would toy around with, ah, this person thinks, what if Jesus wasn't born on December 25th? And when else could it have been? And what do people think? And I have literally believed and studied probably every possible theory that there is that people have speculated on over the past 10, 15 years that I've been looking at this issue. And I never really came, I never decided to sit down and like really resolve this probably until about six years ago, because it became really irritating to me that nobody really had any certainty about it. Even though a lot of people had some really cool possibilities, there was always an exception. There was always something else to try to, that would destroy that other possibility. And I encountered that frequently. You know what I'm curious about? I think that most of my listeners won't be shocked to hear that probably Jesus was not born on December 25th, that that tradition yeah. came about later, that we always like Easter. And when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, that's much more like a historical thing. Like we know when that took place. But yeah. when it comes to the birth of Jesus taking place on December 25th and, you know, things about Saturnalia and the shortest day of the year and the symbolism that goes into all of that. Maybe you could just help us to understand maybe some of the history of how 
the Christian church came to celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th. Yeah, that actually is one of the things after I walked away from this book, I felt like that's one of the, the coolest things that I think I learned. Number one, I really don't believe that December 25th was chosen because it was a pagan holiday. I know that may shock a lot of my reformed brethren and things like that. That's been an idea that's been around and very certain. And I understand why the idea developed because there's so much pagan imagery associated with Christmas, right? Do we, you know, we have this bipolar holiday, very pagan, very Christian, mm -hmm. and you have Santa and Jesus facing off in the rain. So it's, it's obviously like, well, then why did the church choose December 25th? And if you, when I started looking into this, my assumption was that it was a pagan holiday, that the church had kind of incorporated it and chosen it because it was to, to help people that were pagan to accept Christianity. That kind of methodology the church may have been using in this to help people in. But what I discovered is that's not really the, the case at all. I think it was very authentically chosen. And I have an entire chapter on this issue about why it was chosen. John Chrysostom in 386 is really the guy that cemented the December 25th date. And we're not talking about the year in this situation. The year wasn't really cemented until the 500s with Dionysius Exiguus and the AD BC calendar. But even then it wasn't popular for another couple hundred years until like the 700s. So just choosing to celebrate Christmas on December 25th became a very popular thing to do. And John Chrysostom does a, a presentation on this. And here's a quote from him that I put in the book. It's, he says, your heartfelt zeal for this day is a great sign of your love for the one who was born. You, and he's talking about everybody showing up the Christ mass. Mm -hmm. You want, of course, to hear about this day. I well know that many are still debating with each other about it, about the date. Some arguing against, some for. December 25th. Some, even when he was selecting and saying, hey, we're having a Christ mass on December 25th, some are still against it and some are for it. Sounds like today. Mm -hmm. Everywhere, there is a lot of conversation about this day. It's a hot topic. Some saying accusingly that the day is a new innovation. Yeah, that sounds like something we would say. Mm -hmm. ah, it's just made up, which was only recently been introduced while others contend that it is ancient and venerable, and Chrysostom thinks that. But the prophets spoke in advance about his birth and that from the beginning it was plain and clear to those living from Thrace to Cadiz. So he's, it, it goes on, there's a lot more in his homily, and I, I go into much more detail, obviously, in this, and he gives several reasons why he believes December 25th, and none of them are really convincing, he doesn't really explain why they chose December 25th. He just basically says, there's some records in Rome you could go check if you want to. My question was, well, then why was it even a debate? If there was records in Rome, 
that could be confirmed? Why were people still wondering about it? So it's a little sketchy, his reasoning, why he chose December 25th. But one of the things he says is it's really become popular to celebrate it on December 25th. Mm-hmm. We really are having a great time. People are showing up. We're honoring our Lord and Savior. There, I don't believe there was any pagan influence on it, on, on the choice of December 25th. And part of the reason I say that is, so John Chrysostom 386, about when December 25th was just established by the Western church, it wasn't really accepted in the Eastern church at this time. The Western church established it and was, and was making it the date. He it points out that there were other ideas out there with the quote I just read to you. Well, Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the 150, so the 200s, early 200s, he was Clement of Alexandria. And he's the earliest one I found that ever gave any, like, here's a month and day that Christ was born. And he essentially says this. There are those, this is uh, quoting Clement of Alexandria, there are those who have determined not only the year of our Lord's birth, but also the day. And they say that it took place in the 28th year of Augustus. And now let me, let me clarify this before I finish the quote. The 28th year of Augustus, he's, since he's from Alexandria, Egypt, they started the reign of Augustus at the death of Cleopatra, which we now label as 30 BC. So he's saying the 28th year of Augustus in the, the, you'll see 25 throughout this all the time, 25th day of Peshon, which is actually May. Further, others say that he was born on the 24th or 25th of Farmuthi, these are Egyptian month names, which we would equate Pashon is pretty much our May. You know, they don't sync up perfectly. And then Farmuthi, April. So about a month or so apart, but both on the 25th. So either May 25th or April 25th is when the earliest identification of when Christ was born is given by a church. Now I've tried to track down his sources. He says he's quoting sources. And he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is the internet of the day. Mm-hmm. It's got the library right there. It's got all the, all the world's knowledge is going into Alexandria. He's there with some of the great philosophers of the time too, in the 100s, early 200 Greek and non-Christian and Jewish leaders and scholars. That was the brain. Those were the brainiacs of the day. They went to Alexandria. And so he gives those as his choice. So here's, here's kind of how the, how, how it flows together. Why did the church choose then December 25th? If Clement said it was in May, essentially, if you know anything about Catholic theology right now, the Annunciation, Gabriel announced to Mary that she was pregnant is in, on March 25th. That's the date of the Annunciation. So they celebrate that. I, and then nine months later is December 25th. Mm-hmm. One of some Catholic scholars that I read said that Clement's word, when he says the birth of Christ could also mean conception. <laughs> so March 25th is actually a right around the time of the crucifixion. 
Mm -hmm. And so they took Clement's idea and they took another idea of parallelism that the birth of Christ is associated at the same time as his death. So mm-hmm. since he died near Passover, he also was born near Passover. Uh-huh. Or in this case, conceived. Right. So it, it, it does highlight the idea that the church has always believed that life begins at conception and has accepted that idea from the beginning of our foundation. And so that's kind of cool. That is cool. But see, now it's just a mere calculation. Mm-hmm. December 25th, nine months later, it has nothing to do with trying to associate it with Saturnalia. Saturnalia is not even on December 20th yeah. earlier, and it is a big deal celebration and all that, but they were not trying to, it, they weren't putting it in there to try to win the pagans over. See, we celebrate mm-hmm. great big parties too. It really wasn't a great big party. It was a mass. Talk about a boring celebration. <laughs> Right. If right. you've ever been to a mass, it isn't a, known for its, you know, exuberance, perhaps. Drinking. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And okay. So I had also heard a theory that it had to do with the, you know, as they're building out the ecclesial calendar, then trying to add things in at times that didn't conflict with others. And one of the things that got added in before Christmas was the idea of Epiphany, which was the celebration of the Revealing of the Messiah to the Gentiles and the coming of the Magi, which I know is part of your book as well. So the coming of the Magi to see Jesus after his birth. And the Western church was like, oh, well, we're celebrating Epiphany. Well, Jesus had to be born before the Magi would have come. So that was another factor in the calculation. But yeah, so all these things, you know, another thing I, I found very interesting was that it seems to be this idea of Saturnalia. One of the recordings about Saturnalia is from 350 AD. And so what the idea was is that perhaps it wasn't, as many people believe, Christianity trying to co-opt a pagan holiday, but perhaps the pagans were essentially trying to co-opt the Christian celebration of the birth of Jesus by putting a festival onto that date. Yeah, that, look, I was looking at, there was a, oh, I wish... I'd have to look it up now and I'm going to take the time to do it. But there was a calendar that was being made and it talks about Invictus. Yes. And Invictus is, it, to me, when you read the translation of Invictus, it does sound like it's referring to Christ. And there might have been some kind of overlap connection of, of okay, instead of calling the pagan god christ we're calling him him or it's just that's where some people think that there was a pagan influence on christ on the church but i do think that it is all in the same time period which is interestingly enough where where these things are starting to overlap after constantine Mm -hmm. allows the church to be legal and i i i didn't find any confirmation of one way or the other, but I found some really great Catholic scholars that really make a point that really there seems to be no reason at all to think that somehow paganism had infiltrated into the church leadership and they were trying to um, paganize the church that way. It, it seems like the opposite is true. I think you're right. 
I have the reference here. So it's called Sol Invictus Natali, which yeah. means the birth of the unconquered sun. But there's no record of it prior to 350 AD, which yeah. you know leads some people to believe, whereas people have been told that this is a pagan holiday that Christians adapted, that perhaps this is actually pagans trying to co-opt a Christian celebration. In you know, yeah. there was a big pushback at that time in different stages of the Roman Empire to really push back against Christianity because Christianity was taking over so much of the room from the pagans. But tell me a little bit about this concept. So what do you mean by your title, The 500-Year Journey? And what what is it that you have discovered that leads you to say that you know or that there's evidence for when Jesus was actually born? Okay, so yeah, how did the Magi know when Christ was born, who were the Magi and that kind of a thing. Here's my theory in a, in a nutshell here. The Magi were a, a group of astrologers and priests from Babylon. So the ones that show up in Jerusalem to announce to Herod, hey, where, where is the Messiah? I believe that their connection was that they had learned from Daniel exactly when the Jewish Messiah would be born. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Justin Thomas, president of Calvary Chapel Bible College. I want to invite you to visit our beautiful new campus located in the mountains of Southern California. CCBC offers a unique blend of theological training and practical education, equipping students to make a difference. With experienced faculty, supportive community, and a commitment to excellence, CCBC is the perfect foundation for every calling in life and ministry. If you or anyone you know is looking for a place to grow, check us out at ccbc.info. CCBC, a solid foundation for every calling. How did the Magi know when Christ was born. I believe that their connection was that they had learned from Daniel exactly when the Jewish Messiah would be born. The idea that they looked up at the stars and saw some rare alignment causing them to realize that the Jewish Messiah had been born. Like, oh, wait, look at that. There's this weird configuration. of, And now it's lined up with Jupiter and Saturn and Regulus and it's in Leo. All of these things point to, it's got to be the Jewish Messiah. There's absolutely nothing in Babylonian star lore that would ever point to a Jewish Messiah. It's just not there. I looked, I, cause I believed this idea for quite a while. The star of Bethlehem, great video. I, and I really do admire, um, some of the work in that video that was done, but I just find that the whole premise, and I found this across the board, all these different theories about different configurations that the math, that the Magi must have seen, just it just doesn't hold any water because there's no way to prove any of it. Yeah, you know, and I I actually tried to look. I I would go to all these translations of these cuneiform tablets and go, maybe that is what they thought, but they they saw that and it meant that. And it just was an empty vain attempt at everything to just to figure out the birth of Christ that way. So I erased all that and just decided I'm just going to go into what my, my level of competence is 
in and my comfort level is in and studying history. And I'm just going to dive into it. And I studied Josephus and a bunch of other Roman historians, Livy and, oh, just uh, a slew of them. I have a really great bibliography at the end of my book. It actually takes up 10 pages. So if you really want to dig deeply into some of these issues and her, you can. So my book does provide a great bibliography for everybody. But the, so what my, after resolving the date of Christ, I resolved it by history, not by the stars. I studied history. One of the best things I think about what, one of the most interesting things I think about my book is I think one of the things I'm really most proud of, if I can say that, you know, understand what I mean, I think is the, the history about King Herod and the interaction with the Roman empire and Augustus that I think is just a fantastic thing. And that's really how I resolved the problem of his birth is through history mm-hmm. and when the census was and when Herod died and all those things. But back to the Magi, then after I started looking up at the stars, so I identified the date of Christ's birth. I feel like I came to it with biblical symbology. Prophecy was resolved. I looked at Daniel's prophecies. I looked at Leviticus 23. I looked at all of these symbolisms and stories and Old Testament prophecies, and it just was rich with all these ideas and signs and points, you know, pointing to when the Messiah would be born and even what month and day he would be born. And I feel like, okay, I think I, I feel comfortable with it. Then I looked up at the stars and it is amazing what I saw. Once I cleared away the, established the date, then I looked up. And so then the Magi story started, well, what did, what is it that they knew? How did they show up? That it, you know, we know they saw a star in the east, he said, Herod. We saw his, we, they say, we saw his star in the east. And then they went to Jerusalem, which makes sense since that's where the Jewish Messiah should have been born. But they were wrong, weren't they? The Jewish Messiah was not born in Jerusalem and nobody even knew he had been born. That has a lot to do with the Pharisees and their political attention was directed elsewhere. They weren't paying attention. But how did the Magi know what what was going on? So I believe that they are connected back by a guild. There are guilds of Magi. They're like, like there's Google and Microsoft and there's all these different guilds. They're all in the technology branch, but they kind of keep their information proprietary. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing that the magi and different groups of magi did they had all their specialties some studied the stars some studied other kind of necromancy and things our magi i believe were believers jewish believers or they weren't jewish necessarily but they were connected back to the time when daniel was in babylon during the captivity so that's why it's called 500 year journey mm-hmm. The Magi were there, they heard Daniel and they believed Daniel and they paid attention to Daniel. And if you looked at Daniel's 70 weeks, and I, this is one of the more controversial issues regarding my book is the 70 weeks prophecy. I spent years, I literally years, and I gave up on it several times because it was so wild, all the theories about the 70 weeks. 
I finally resolved it down to, and I, and I, I think I make very great case for it. It's not 490 years. It's a 500 prophetic years. It's still years, but there's gaps. Like right now we're in a gap between the 69th week and the 78th week, right? Where that's a the church age kind of thing. Why well, there's another gap in there that's never accounted for. It's mentioned, but it's always considered consecutive. So I believe there was another gap in there and that helps the timeline fit. And it points to the birth of Christ. So I believe the Magi who were, um, there's a difference between astrology and astronomy. And I make a big point of this in the book. They, we use the stars. God gave us the stars to keep track of time, the passage of time, Genesis, right? That's what they were made for. And so I think that they just processed the time frame beyond just uh, solar days and all that kind of stuff. You have to sync everything up with the lunar calendar and all those that on the celebrations, those are two things that were very important to the Hebrews and in the ancient world was keeping the solar and the lunar calendars aligned because of the feasts mentioned in Leviticus 23. You have to keep track of all that. And, and when those things are happening, you have to make adjustments to coordinate everything. And they were doing this. And I, again, I go into great detail in the book of explaining this and give charts and all that. But finally, I believe they were just the, the time of the 62 weeks, which Daniel says until Messiah, the Prince exegetically, I believe this points to the birth of Christ. I know many put it towards the crucifixion, but I won't explain why, um, I, I won't make that case right now, but I believe it points to the birth of Christ and the, and so the Magi were anticipating that they were counting down to his birth. And then the stars lit up mm -hmm. and there was that, um, sign that appeared and I'll leave that for the book because okay. there's a complexity to it, but also a, a super simplicity to it that I want people to experience. Um, there's an awe that happens to my heart that, that did happen to my heart. There is something beautiful in a way that I hadn't experienced before with any of the other theories that really just went at, you know, it just had the moment. It's like, that's it. Mm. That really is truly what they saw. And they saw it twice because mm -hmm. they saw it once in the East yeah, and then it disappeared. And then they went to Jerusalem and said, Hey, where is he? And nobody knew. It's like, what are you talking about? Maybe you checked in Bethlehem and then they saw it again. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't something that was perpetual had to have happened once and then God allowed it to happen again. Yeah. So that's in Matthew two, verse two, it says, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then in verse nine, after listening to the King, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So yeah, it's, it's this moment. So you're saying it's not, it wasn't perpetual. It, it, and that seems to be right. the case. It, it showed up once and then kind of signaling, okay, the time has come. And then it showed up again when they went to Bethlehem to kind of say as yeah. a confirmation, if you will. Yeah. It, it, it was all a confirmation of what they already knew would be happening. See, if the, the Pharisees had been paying attention to 
Daniel's prophecies, they may not have been surprised at all. But only these, this group of Magi, I believe were Arab and East, meant East of Israel, meant Arabia, which was the whole Middle East at that time. And I connect them to Babylon primarily because of the connection to Daniel. They mm -hmm. could have been from some other city, but I, I think Babylon was kind of the center. And I go into my explanation and my defense of that idea in the book in great detail. And they showed up and they were excited and then they were disheartened. Mm -hmm. But then they saw it again and it just, God, you're magnificent. You're, you, you, you did guide us. You did speak to us. You did illustrate and show. So the combination in the book is, hey, I, history um, and astronomy, keeping track of time, mm -hmm. all coordinate to just show that the universe and his plan are completely controlled by God. And he set it up all from the beginning. And it all collects and coordinates right there at that particular moment. That's great. So I know one of the questions somebody might ask is, why does this matter? And what would you say to that question? Well, interestingly, that, that is always the first one. It's like, does it really? So the son of God, does it matter when he was born? It's just like, okay, my, my birthday was July 19th and I was sick and everything. And so we didn't do anything. And actually, I just celebrated by rafting a week before. It's like, it's the big deal, right? Yeah. I don't have to celebrate on the day. And, you know, and there are, there is a good point that some people make. It's like, we shouldn't celebrate a birth of somebody, kind of a pagan thing that people do and all that kind of a thing. And it's like, okay, I'm not advocating any of that. All I'm saying is Christ was born at a certain time, at a certain moment in history. And it wasn't December 25th. But it was exactly when God told us it was, and it is amazing. And all I can say is read the book and um, see what it does to your heart. I'm amazed. And I'm more, you know, in a world that's really just filled with lies. I, can we just admit that? We don't know. You know, everybody's, there's just lies everywhere. And to come down on a solid truth something that is actually we can point to this moment in history and say this happened and Christ did was born it's not a fairy tale see this is one of my things too is the modern traditions nativity scene does come off as a fairy tale like this flowing mm -hmm. like you see the movies that are supposed to be very historical you got this drone apparently like a, it's like a drone this glowing light guiding the magi that's not what's happening at all. And that's not the miracle that mm -hmm. the miracle is like a thousand times bigger than something like that. I could see God pulling that off. You know, I look, you know, an angel as a globe of light or his presence. I'm walking before the Magi as they leads into the house. That's, but that's not what the language they're using means. It's, um, I, I go into that into the book and I make a defense for what it is that I'm saying better there. But the miracle is that his son 
came at the perfect time within exactly a point in history when God wanted him to come, predicted he would come 532 years before, exactly to the moment Christ came and the heavens announced it in a miraculous way, even beyond what the Magi said was his star. It matters. Mm -hmm. And I hope that you see that it matters. And I, I can't describe why it matters. It just, I hope it hits your heart. Sure. And I think there is a theological reason why it does matter, actually. And I think that that yeah. is found in the book of Isaiah. You know, there's this whole section in Isaiah 45 through 54, maybe, where it's this whole defense where God is speaking through Isaiah about the difference between him and false gods. And he says that the difference between him and false gods, he says, first of all, your false gods, you created them yourself, like you made it out of wood, and then you worship the very thing that you created, and it doesn't speak, it doesn't think, it's a dumb god, if you will. But he says, the difference with me, he says, I'm the true and living god, and the proof that I am the true god is that I will tell you the end from the beginning. In other words, I will tell you what yeah. will happen before it happens. And then you'll be able to look back and see, okay, he predicted the future. And so what we call this predictive prophecy. And we would say that yes. this is one of the proofs that the Bible is a book of divine origin in that it tells us things prophetically that were then fulfilled. And it's really interesting when you go back and look at some of these things. One of my favorite things in even writing my own book was looking at some of the predictive prophecies and then how they were viewed throughout history. There was this entire time where, you know, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was the Leningrad Codex. And Leningrad Codex dated to like 1100 AD. And so there was this theory which was put forth by some people who felt that, well, they're trying to refute Christian claims about the death of Jesus, particularly in Isaiah 53, being predictive. They said it's too specific. It must have been added in by Christians later on. And then they got rid of all the old copies of the Old Testament. And then they were basically trying to pull a fast one on the whole world, but especially the Jews, to trick them into being Christians by saying, hey, look, this passage talks about what happened to Jesus. And they said well, that must have been added by Christians later on because we only have copies of the Old Testament. Our oldest copy dates to 1100 AD and surely Christians infiltrated. And then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were able to confirm that actually that, that is not what had happened. The, the prophecy had been in there hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and it hadn't been altered or changed, and in fact, Jesus had fulfilled the prophecy. So that being said, this is another example. Why does this matter? Well, because if not only the death of Jesus was predicted prophetically, but the birth of Jesus was predicted prophetically, well, then this would be just one more in the long line of predictive prophecies that were then fulfilled as proof that the Bible is truly divinely inspired. Amen. Yes. Exactly. The, and the part of the prophecy in that was the historical typology. And I go into great detail about all the typology and some events that are in the Old Testament that point to the birth of Christ that really haven't been seen as pointing to the birth of Christ. But once that switch is, you know, flipped, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, it mm. does. Can you give point. us one example? Well, the dedication of the 
Solomon's temple is one where if you read his prayer, it's all pointing to, hey, God's presence is coming down into onto the earth. He's going to dwell in the holy of holies. He's going to sit on the throne in the inner sanctuary. And all of that imagery, if we once we recognize that Jesus referred to himself as the temple, so he is the embodiment. He was the inspiration for the physical temple that Solomon built. I believe he's the the model temple anyway. But then he calls himself the temple to the Pharisees. Hey, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he is God's presence in dwelling in the form of a baby coming into this world. And you'll see the connection too to the date that I believe points to the birth of Christ. Interesting. So that's in 1 Kings 8. And... The other one is Nehemiah's dedication. It also happens at the same time that Solomon, Ethanim 1, is when the Solomon's temple is dedicated and also Nehemiah dedicates the wall. And there they read, they just, Ezra just reads the word of God, mm -hmm. which is another typology of Christ. Right. And I think those symbols, when you, when you lay it out in the book and you see what's happening and you connect it with other passages, you'll see how these are prophetically, typologically pointing to Christ. We have, like you said before, we have a very strong typology of Christ's resurrection, death and resurrection, with Passover lamb and the fulfillment of that. But the historical typology is an event in the Old Testament that is seemed to be typified by the New Testament. And there is a correlation between Old Testament events, liberation of in Old Testament events of liberation and the New Testament events of salvation. And that's Christ fulfilling those. What I think is a very strong typological connection from the Old Testament to the birth of Christ that really haven't been made before. Yeah. So I, I lay those before you, whether those are convincing or not. Awesome. Are you willing yeah. to tell our listeners what you think is the actual date of Christ's birth? Well, let's see here. I'll do it in the, the, not in BC AD. How about that? I believe he was born on Ethanim 1 in the 24th year of the reign of Augustus from the death of Cleopatra. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that was something really magical that happened when I erased BC AD and I, and I just looked at the history. I have a whole chart of all this stuff. I did, I did thousands of pages of numbers charts of, of a table it's kind of like putting uh, all the dates of history it's kind of like that scene in a beautiful mind where that where the wife walks into the shed and sees all the all the connections he's been making was there a moment like that where your wife walked into your basement and was like what is this <laughs> my wife just would kick me and kind of come to bed yeah <laughs> no she yes it, it, it feels like that i would just play around with this it was more of a hobby than anything and it was just for my own personal satisfaction and then oh and then it just became more magnificent as more that I, I was really just trying to find all the other ramifications of this some of which you articulated so beautifully with prophecy so essentially my book is about is is about something true and reliable in the midst of all the lies that we're experiencing today mm -hmm. we, i think we need this anchor we need to rope onto something solid 
or else our, our ships are going to be tossed and turned, you know, by the waves of doubt on the sea of lies that we're in. And that's what I hope happens to people's hearts as they read this. One other thing which you alluded to or mentioned earlier is that this is a historical event as opposed to, like you said, with the whole thing where it seems like there's like a drone that they're following and yeah. it just seems so mythological and weird and yeah. and not like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like a real event. And what makes Christianity unique amongst all the claims in the world, whether they be philosophies or religions, is that our faith is not based on an esoterical idea or concept, but it's based on historical events which took place in real places with real people in real time that you can go and visit today and that they can be researched. I, I love what Paul says to um, Festus in his argument in the end of, book, end of the book of Acts. He says, Festus, you know these things. They did not happen in a corner, right? Like, in other words, this didn't happen behind closed doors. It happened right out in the open, and people saw it, and you know that it happened. And I think that that is such an important thing for people to take hold of, is that we're not talking about Jewish fairy tales. We are talking about real people, real events, and things that therefore can be researched. And what I always tell people is, if, the, if we're talking about the truth, which we are, the truth is never afraid of examination and questions because examination of facts will lead us to actual events and conclusions which will bolster our faith rather than, than weaken it. And so I think that, that, to me, that's what you've done here. And I'll just add the two Bible verses that I think are worth noting is uh, Galatians 4, verse 4, where it says, when the fullness of time had come, or as some translations translate it, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And then the other verse is in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, which it says that God, who cannot lie, at the proper time manifested his word, which again, you mentioned that's a typology of Jesus to the word. So yeah, I think that's yeah. it's fascinating stuff. So where can people find your books? Where can they learn more about what you do? They're on all platforms, uh, Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. You can pre-order them. That would be really fantastic. You can also go to my website at 500yearjourney.com, and you can order a, a copy. If you order a copy from me now, it could be a signed copy, and I'll, I should have these. Uh, they, they're, they're supposed to be shipping them to me in the next week or two. Um, so I should have hard copies then, and I send out my pre-ordered signed copies early. Part of the wonderful thing about that is then you get to read them, but hopefully you pass them on to your pastor or something along those lines. They actually come out if you order pre-order through Amazon or uh, what there are Christian outlets too that um, do that. But the publisher has it all going into bookstores all over the nation. So you couldn't be even walk into your local bookstore and say, hey, do you have it? They should be able to get it. Is September 12th is when it officially comes out. And it seems like, well, it's weird that it's in September instead of December. But again, it has to do with coordinating with when I believe the birth of Christ is. It didn't match up perfectly. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wanted it to be the day that I believed, but I got it as close as I could. And if you get the book early and you'll read it, if you would uh, spread the word and let your pastors know and, and people in your church know, even if you end up like what we were just talking about, if you disagree, you know, it's an engaging conversation. And I think you'll learn a lot 
from the book, even if you end up not really believing the conclusion or you're skeptical of it and you wrestle with it yourself. Great. Fantastic. And, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. That's what I try to inspire people to do is to think about things and maybe you'll have insights that I just didn't see. So it's important, but I think you'll still be very blessed by, by reading the book and engaging in this conversation and passing that on. And I could see it being used in small groups and, and all those kind of things. And so those are the outlets that it's our, our ad and it comes out September 12th, but if you're early, you can, you might get one within the month before uh, the actual release date. So that would be cool. Excellent. Well, thank you, Corey, for sharing a little bit about your book. I hope people will check it out and engage with your ideas. Hey, well, thank you very much. And blessings to you. Really love your ministry and everything you're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. In upcoming episodes, I'll be interviewing author Lucy S.R. Austin, who recently wrote a biography of Elizabeth Elliot, published by Crossway Publishing. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if this episode was helpful to you, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, please do so by leaving a written review on either the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. Those written reviews really help to boost the show in their rankings. And if you would do that, it would help other people discover this content as well. And I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless you. Thank you.